0: We covered, uh, just a to, just to review, just to be clear, we're not under the Mosaic Law, very non-controversial. We're not outside of any commandments whatsoever. It's not just free-floating. There are objective moral norms. First point of the law of Christ is the law of love. All of this, assuming that we already have a right relationship with God, all of this assuming the central uh, empowering presence of the Spirit. So, number one, the, the law of Christ is the law of love. Number two, the law of Christ is Christ's example. So bound up with love is the example of Christ. After all, he's the paradigm of love, isn't he? It's his giving up of himself on the cross that's our example of love. John 13, real important passage, Christ gives his people a new commandment. A new commandment I give to you, Jesus says, that you love one another. So we've just seen in point number one how important this self-giving love is, but Jesus continues, Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So Jesus shows us what it means to love one another. Elsewhere, John writes, By this, we know love that he laid down his life for us. He's the example. He's the pattern. He's the paradigm. And we ought to lay down our lives for one another. 1 John 3.16 In 1 John to 11 we read that the love of God was made manifest to us and that God sent his son so that we might have life. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be a propitiation for our sins. If God has loved us in this way, in this manner, thusly, hutos, we also ought to love one another. See, the the old covenant Jew, those bound to the Mosaic law, they didn't have this great example of what it means to love. Love as I have loved you. The commandment is new because of the cross of Christ. In in our big passage, Galatians 6, 2, again, we're commanded to bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Bear is an imperative. It's bastazo. We'll see that again later. We're going to bear one another's burdens. That's a commandment. And all throughout Galatians, we see that it's Christ. Christ is the ultimate burden bearer, isn't he? Praise God. He's, he's the ultimate burden bearer in his self-giving love on the cross. Galatians 1.4, he gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age. 2.20, the Son of God loved us and gave himself for us. Three thirteen, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. 4.5, he redeemed those under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. So Jesus Christ is the paradigm for love. The law of Christ is the example of Christ. In Romans 15, the context you remember is with regard to food and the strong and the weak, Jew-Gentile relations and unity, and the strong are called to bear with the weak. And not to please themselves. And here Paul uses the same word for "bear, bastazo, as he did in Galatians 6:2. And he continues, in verse two of chapter 15 of Romans, "Let each of us please our neighbor for their good, to build them up." This is just all over the place. But what's important for this section is the reason that Paul gives. Why are we to do this? Verse three. four: Christ did not please himself. That's the reason. Why should we do this? Because Christ didn't do this. Again, Christ is the great example of what it means to love our neighbor rather than pleasing ourselves. So it's important to note when issuing these commands to the churches that are all over the New Testament, the writers rarely appeal to the Mosaic Law. Rarely, but they often appeal to Christ. Paul's ethic, as I mentioned earlier, is an As a gospel-driven ethic. Our evangel informs our ethic. So, Christian husbands should love their wives as Christ loved the church. Christians should love one another as Christ has loved us, John 13. When Paul wants to encourage the Corinthians to give generously, he writes, "...for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich." So he doesn't just say, you need to give, you need to support the poor Christians. No, he says, look at Jesus. You need to love your wife. It's your duty. No, look at Jesus. Christians should forgive one another. Why? As God in Christ forgave us. Ephesians 4.32 We're to walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. Ephesians 5.1 And just a side note, if you haven't read Fred Zaspel's article, I think it's in Reformation, Reformation and Revival, on 1 Corinthians 2, 1-5, I believe. This is exactly what he's getting at. Fantastic article on Paul's gospel-driven ethic. Philippians 2, very famous passage. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you looking to the interests of others. In your relationships with one another value others, have the same attitude of mind Christ Jesus had, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he humbled himself. He's found in in the very nature of a servant, made in human likeness, found in appearance as a human being, and he humbles himself, becomes obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place, gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and every tongue acknowledge Jesus Christ is Lord. We talk a lot about Christology and there's been so much ink spilt about this passage, but don't forget the actual meaning. What's the meaning? Be humble, serve others. And then all the Christology comes in. Both are important, but the point is, value others above yourselves. Christ is the example. 1 Peter 2.21, when we suffer for doing good, we need to know this, this is what we've been called to. Why? Quote, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you might follow in his footsteps. In 1 Corinthians six twelve to 20 Paul could have easily appealed to the seventh commandment of the Decalogue. That's not what he does. He says... Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. I think we we tend to be so reactionary. And and many of you know that penal substitution is under attack from all sorts of circles and so we we tend to overreact. And all we talk about is penal substitution. And we should talk about penal substitution a lot. But that's not, all the, how, not the only way the cross functions in the New Testament. The cross is also the paradigm for love. Christ is also our example. They go together. It's more, it's more complex. So let's not be reductionistic in our, our theology. So think about Romans 6, 1 to 14. We're taught that we're not to continue in sin because we've died and been raised with Christ. It's interesting in 6 and 6, 2. Romans 6.2, Paul says, we are those who've died with Christ. We died in baptism. 6.11, he says, therefore, calculate yourself, consider yourself dead to sin. It's really interesting. Consider yourself dead to sin. Why? Because you are dead to sin. Paul's ethic is a gospel-driven ethic. The indicative informs the imperative. Paul's call to obedience is ever and always gospel-driven. So yes, yes, Forgiveness, yes, penal substitution, but also it's a model for Christian living. Christ is our great example. So point number two, law of Christ is the example of Christ. Point number three, the law of Christ is the teaching of Christ. This shouldn't be very controversial. I don't think it is. Rather obvious point, If we, what is the teaching of Christ? By that, I just mean the red letters uh, that we have. Uh, by the way, the red letters, is interesting. that was first printed in 1899 in the, in the King James and it was the reason uh, they, they printed on the red was to remind us of the blood, blood poured out for us. And it's been really unhelpful now in, in many ways, but started out with a good intention anyway, like most things do. So the law of Christ includes his teaching. It's not only his example and his person, but it's his teaching. He's our great prophet. He's the great eschatological prophet Deuteron- Deuteronomy 18 pointed to. He's our authority. I mean, another name for a Christian is a slave. Slave of what? Slave of Jesus Christ. Most, most of our translations, probably maybe all of them, will translate that as servant or bondservant, But there's a difference, isn't there? Servants give service to someone. Slaves belong to someone. We are slaves of Christ. That's what the word means. It's only in, it's only in American English Bible translation that it's servant. So the risen Christ is our master. We're owned by him, twice owned by him. We are to listen to Him, Matthew 17. Jesus is our authority for all authority has been given to Him, Matthew 28. Our commission is to go and teach others all to observe that Jesus commanded. The 1646 confession I mentioned earlier is clear on this. It says that the believer is to press after a heavenly and evangelical obedience to all the commands which Christ as head and king And his new covenant has prescribed to them. So we're under his authority. The law of Christ is the teaching of Christ. And it's interesting that the teaching of Christ is not explicitly quoted in the rest of the New Testament very often, but it's alluded to all the time. It obviously includes the red letters, but there's more. Even our big text, Galatians 6, 1-2, is dependent upon the teaching of Jesus. When Paul tells the Galatians to restore a person caught in transgression... In the spirit of gentleness, he surely has Jesus teaching on restoring sinners in Matthew 18 in mind. If you look and compare the two. Galatians 6, also alludes to Matthew 23, 4. Unlike the scribes and Pharisees, who tie up heavy burdens, Berea, hard to bear, and they lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger, Matthew 23, Christians... Are called to bear one another's burdens, beret, and so fulfill the law of Christ. So while not explicit, the teaching of Jesus is clearly alluded to and informs the rest of the New Testament. More can be said on that. There's more in the book, but I'm going to move on just because it's a, it's a fairly obvious point. The law of Christ is the teaching of Christ's apostles. Point number four. It's the law of love. It's it's the law. It's Christ's example. It's the teaching of Christ, and it's the teaching of Christ's apostles. This, again, shouldn't be controversial. The relation of Christ and his apostles is a very tight one, much tighter than many would like. And there's a lot of circles, sometimes more progressive politically, and they want to be red letter Christians. You've probably heard of it. And they want to, you know, I like Jesus, I just don't like Paul. Uh, you can't do that. Jesus appointed apostles to continue. His prophetic ministry. He set apart twelve men for this task and commissioned them as representatives and ambassadors. Acts ten forty one. We don't have time to go there, but John fourteen to sixteen is really important in this regard. Robert Letham, a theologian, writes: Through this appointment of the apostles, through this appointment, the apostles received the authority of Christ and became His ambassadors representing him in the church and in the world. Henceforth, their teaching was to be Christ's own teaching, no less, end quote. Therefore, the authority of the apostles now found in the New Testament is bound up with the authority of the risen Christ himself. Their teaching is his teaching. Ephesians 2.20, the prophets and apostles are the foundation of the church. So Paul can write in Ephesians 3, he says, Assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to people in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. Think of Galatians. Paul didn't receive his gospel from people, but from a revelation of Jesus Christ. His words are authoritative. So Jesus and the apostolic word are inextricably bound together. This is why the early church was devoted to the apostles' teaching. Acts 2. Paul can even tell the Ephesians, whom Jesus never visited, that Jesus came to you and preached peace. So when you read 1 Corinthians, you're reading the words of Christ. Christ. 1 John 4, 6 says, Whoever knows God listens to us, the apostles. You know God, you listen to the apostles, you listen to the New Testament for us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. So the consequence, and this should, I hope this is, I hope you know this, and this is, I'm preaching to the choir here, but the consequence is that those who want to be faithful to Christ must be faithful to the New Testament scriptures. Of course, the New Testament scriptures presuppose the authority of the Old Testament scriptures. Which we'll see more about that next. Again, as Lethem says, there can be no dichotomy between Jesus and the apostles. We are offered Christ clothed with the apostolic gospel. That is the way God intended it and executed it. No other option is given us. So the law of Christ necessarily includes the teachings of Jesus and the teaching of the apostles, which for us is the New Testament. So believers are bound to every imperative in the New Testament, every commandment. It's sad that I have to say that. Believers are bound to every commandment in the New Testament. That's New Covenant theology. As Jonathan Edwards puts it, The New Testament is, quote, the charter and municipal law of the Christian church. Or as our own John Riesinger said, the New Testament's the church's foundation documents. It's the constitution of the new covenant. So point number five, and maybe more controversial, I hope not. The law of Christ is the whole canon of scripture interpreted in light of Christ. Sometimes New Covenant theology is charged I mentioned with antinomianism or even being Marcionite. Marcionite knows a heretic who dis, discounted the Old Testament and sometimes we're charged with, with that discounting the Old Testament. And there may indeed be some who claim the label New Covenant theology and, and, and hold this to you but I think it's wrong to do so. Ultimately the New Covenant believer is bound to the entire canon of scripture with this very important qualification interpreted in lights of Christ all of this all of this is god's word for us 2 Timothy 3 all scripture at this point obviously referring to the old testament all scripture is god breathed and profitable for teaching for reproof for correction and for training in righteousness that the man of god may be competent Equipped for every good work. So people who want to dismiss anything that's strictly in the old I mean it's two-thirds of our Bible here. Romans 15, "For everything that was written in the past was written for our instruction." And then in the verses following Romans 15, he goes to quote from all four sections of the Old Testament. You have the historical books, the law, poetry, prophetic sections, all of it. All of it's for our instruction. The Old Testament events, they happened to, happen to them as an example for us. They were, quote, written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. 1 Corinthians 10, 11. So believers in Jesus, we are the children of Abraham. This is very clear in Galatians again, 3.7. is those of faith who are children of Abraham. 3.29, if you belong to Abraham, you belong to Christ. Your heirs according to promise. Galatians 6, 15 and 16. If you follow the rule, the canon, if you follow the rule that circumcision and uncircumcision means nothing, then you are the Israel of God. We are the Israel of God. We are children of Abraham, and the Old Testament is our book. This is our history. As as theologian Graham Cole writes, Christian students of the Old Testament must pass by the cross of Jesus Christ on their return to the Old Testament. It's our book, but we approach it as Christians. Flip over to Matthew 5. Another famous passage. There's a couple, two, or three books you could buy back there, so I'm not going to spend much time on it. I just want to make a quick point about Matthew 5. We gain this perspective from, from Jesus' teaching in Matthew 5. Let's just read 17 to 19. Very familiar words for us. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. And of course, as you know, the, the all-important word in this section is fulfill, isn't it? Fulfill, play rock. Right, but we've got to de- define it by how, else, how Matthew used it elsewhere in his gospel. And it becomes really clear. He used it every time he has this fulfillment formula. Several times through the book of Matthew. Matthew's retelling Israel's history through the life of Jesus. Jesus fulfills all of the Old Testament. He fills it up by taking the story of Israel into himself. In the first five chapters of Matthew, first seven chapters, the story of King Jesus is told told as the story of Israel. Genesis, Matthew 1.1, the book of the genealogy, the Biblos Geneseos, the book of Genesis. Exodus, Matthew 2.15, out of Egypt, I've called my son. Deuteronomy, you have the law, the law of Christ. You have Matthew 5 to 7 with the teaching. Then you have a kingly ministry a prophetic ministry then you have an exile the cross and then a restoration the resurrection Matthew 5 1 Jesus like a new Moses ascends the mountain replaying the law-giving moment in the history of Israel so Jesus did not come to abolish the law but to bring about that which it pointed to the law and the prophets pointed forward they prophesied and Jesus fulfills the law and the prophets and that they point to him and he is their fulfillment. 518 says, neither an iota nor a dot will pass from the law until the Lord returns. And there's some who advocate that this, is, this happened at the cross and resurrection. I don't think so though, especially when you look in the parable, parallel in Luke. I think he's talking about the end of the age when he says, until all is accomplished. Luke sixteen seventeen. So these things are valid until, until Christ returns. Some hold that it's only the moral law that remains valid. But listen to Jesus' all-inclusive words. Not an iota, not a dot. It shows he means the law as a whole. The law is a package. I take the commandments of verse 19 to refer to the Old Testament commandments interpreted through Christian lenses, not simply the New Testament. Doug Moo writes, So these commandments should be understood as referring to the commandments as fulfilled and thereby perhaps reinterpreted in Jesus. So if you you grab one of the books, grab John's book, grab Gary Long's book, there's several back there, I've got more in there. The antitheses of 21 to 48 bear this out. So what should be clear from these sections is the locus of authority has shifted from the Mosaic law to the law of Christ in the new age. He is the authoritative one. And in there, he contrasts his teaching with the teaching of Moses. New Testament scholar Daniel Kirk is worth quoting at length here. He writes about these antitheses, with only one possible exception, Jesus does not cite what he takes to be errant interpretations of the laws and set his interpretation over against the customary reading. Let me say that again. With only one possible exception, Jesus does not cite what he takes to be errant interpretations of the laws as he sets his interpretation over against the customary reading. No, he sets his own teaching as a counterpoint to the law itself. Moreover, Matthew's summary comment indicates that his intention in the Sermon on on the Mount in 729 was to portray Jesus as one speaking from his own authority in contrast to the scribes. The difference is not simply that Jesus is giving a better, more challenging interpretation, but that he is setting himself up as a teacher with his own authority, not an authority derived from the subject matter of the law. End quote. So we see the, the whole canon interpreted in light of Jesus Christ and the new covenant is our authority, but it raises a real important question. What's the relation between the law of Moses and the law of Christ? The whole issue of continuity and discontinuity that we'll be hearing more about. So the law of Christ in relation to the law of Moses. I hope it's clear that there's both continuity and discontinuity between them. The law of Christ is new, but it's not absolutely new. There is overlap. We see that all the law and the prophets are applicable to New Covenant believers, but only as they're interpreted in light of their fulfillment. New Testament scholar Craig Blomberg agrees he says the Old Testament remains normative and relevant for Jesus followers and he quotes 2 Timothy 3:16. those who would say that that's not the case they don't, they're not going to know what to do with 2 Timothy 3:16. but none of it can rightly be interpreted until one understands how it has been fulfilled in Christ every Old Testament text must be viewed in light of Jesus' person and ministry and the changes introduced by the new covenant he inaugurated have a really similar quote by uh, by Howard Marshall we read all of scripture with Christian lenses on again we shouldn't have to say that should we Jesus is our hermeneutical filter we read the Bible as Christians my my Old Testament professor often says we learn exegesis from the apostles so first let's look at, at, at discontinuity just a brief uh, a bit about discontinuity. It's, it's not totally distinct from the law of Moses, but it is new. As early as 150 A.D., Justin Martyr called Christ the new lawgiver, the title of one of John's books. Justin Martyr, 150s, called Christ the new lawgiver. Similarly, around 100 A.D., the epistle of Barnabas speaks of the new law of our Lord Jesus Christ. So we need to study the fathers. I, I think there's a lot to be had there. A lot not to be had too, but I think, I think they're putting it together in a, in a good way in terms of Israel and the church and, and this issue. So as we've seen in 1 Corinthians 9 and 7, Paul clearly distinguishes the law of Moses and the law of Christ. He's not under the law of Moses, but he is under the law of Christ. In chapter 7, keeping the commands of God is no longer keeping the Mosaic law because it included circumcision. So God's law has shifted from the law of Moses in the Old Covenant to the law of christ in the new so we do not look directly to moses martin luther writes we have our own master christ and he has set before us what we are to know observe do and leave undone now i want to say a word about something uh, a a view that's gaining gaining um, advocates in galatians 6 galatians 6 2 has law of christ I mentioned earlier before that Galatians five thirteen and 14 speaks of, of the law, the Mosaic law, that's fulfilled through love. So some are arguing that because of the close proximity that Galatians 6 to, the law of Christ, which says the law of Christ, but they're still wanting to say that it's actually the law of Moses. So never mind that Paul said law of Christ, it's the law of Moses because he said so in five thirteen and 14. But think about that for a minute. Think about the book of Galatians. If you spend any time there, if not, grab John's new book and spend some time in it. Read Galatians through several times and think about the whole issue there. Paul's Paul's begun his argument and he's wanting to show that Jews and Gentiles are on the same footing because of the gospel. He spent all the time in 3 and 4 working out the law, uh, unpacking what it means, why it came, all that. And then at the very end of the book, he says, oh, by the way, fulfill the law. I mean, that would have just been really confusing for them. It would have just messed up anything he would already said about the law. It would just turn over all the teaching that he had spent the five chapters doing. So that's implausible that that's the case. Plus, Paul adds an important genitive descriptor, the law of Christ. So the ultimate context is really the whole canon. You, you see the whole teaching of the New Testament is really unlikely that Galatians two is referring to the law of Moses instead of the law of Christ. Also, just worth noting, it is different verbs. They both have fulfill in the English. One is plerao, one is anaplerao. So that's just worth, worth noting. So as mentioned above, another reason it's clear that the law of Christ is not the same as the law of Moses the glaring lack of direct appeal to the law especially when it would have been so easy to do so, wouldn't it? If God's eternal moral law was summarized in the Ten Commandments wouldn't it have just been really easy for Paul or any of the other writers just to appeal to it? Consider Exodus 20.14 or 18, Leviticus 18-20 both teaching on sexual morality could easily appeal to that to the Thessalonians but that's not what he does he doesn't proceed that way rather he says for this is the will of God your sanctification that you abstain from sexual immorality that each of you know how to control your own body in holiness and honor not in passionate lust like the pagans who do not know God First Corinthians is similar he doesn't go to the Decalogue instead he uses gospel logic do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? To the Ephesians, he could have quoted Exodus 20:15 about lying, but instead he says, let the thief no longer about stealing, let the thief thief no longer steal but rather let him labor. When teaching on idolatry, Paul doesn't go to the first second commandments. No, he easily could have done that. It's shocking that he doesn't. As Westerholm, Stephen Westerholm writes, quote, Paul never derives appropriate Christian conduct simply and directly by applying pertinent commands in the Torah. The inevitable procedure, if Torah remained the binding statement of God's will for believers. So it's shocking that he doesn't do that. It would have been, as restorum says, it would have been the inevitable procedure if Torah was still valid, but it's not. One more issue with discontinuity is, in Paul, the very careful distinction he makes between doing the law and fulfilling the law. I've got, a, I've got a dense paragraph I want to read to you. Again, it's Stephen Westerhohn in, uh, in another essay. He writes this. It's worth noting, however, that in Paul, while Christians are never said to do the law, poyane, those under the law are seen as obligated to do its commands. Indeed, the law itself, Paul claims, Rests on the principle of doing as opposed to believing. Galatians 3.12, Romans 10.5. If then the essence of life under the law is the requirement to do its commands, it is not strange, is it not strange that Paul would avoid the term in context, context where he relates Christian behavior to the law? On the other hand, where specifically Christian behavior is related positively to the Mosaic law, the verb plerun, fulfill, or a cognate inevitably occurs. Yet these terms are never used where the requirements or achievements of those living under the law are in view. Given the occasional nature of Paul's correspondence, such a consistent distinction in usage is striking indeed and demands some explanation. Let me try to summarize that. In Paul's letters, he speaks of doing the law only to unbelievers, only to those who are still under the law. He never speaks of doing the law to Christians, only of fulfilling the law. And this is consistent. Romans 2 speaks of doing the law. If you you believe that Romans 2 is speaking about Christians, this wouldn't work. I don't think that's the case. So uh, let me just read a few of the fulfillment passages. This is for believers. Believers in the New Covenant, they... They're fulfilled, not doing the law. Play Rao, not Poine. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. The whole law is fulfilled in one word. Galatians five. We've already looked at these passages. Romans eight. The righteous requirement of the law is fulfilled in us. Romans thirteen eight. We're told the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. Verse ten. Love is the fulfilling of the law. So only Christians who have the spirit of the new age can fulfill the law. Paul, just like Jesus in Matthew 17, he's speaking of eschatological fulfillments. It should not be overlooked that in these fulfillment of the law passages, Paul is never prescribing Christian behavior, but he's only describing Christian behavior. Jason Meyer in the book I alluded to earlier, listen to this quote. He's he's picking up the same thing here. The Philman does, Westerholm does, uh, Moo does. This is what Jason Meyer says. Paul does not prescribe Christian behavior with reference to the law. He describes the fruit of their behavior behavior with a retroactive reference to the way that it conforms to the law and thus amounts to its fulfillment. Ironically and paradoxically, those who live under the law bear fruit resulting in sinful passions, resulting in transgression of the law and death. And those who have died to the law bear fruit that amounts to the law's fulfillment so only those under the law are required to do the law with, and, and the result is that the obedience of those not under the law fulfills the law that's a real technical point if you didn't get that maybe we can talk about it later but I think that's important I think that's amazing the distinction is that careful Hebrews we love that book really important book on, on discontinuity could be summarized as Jesus is better. (laughs) Hebrews 1, 1 and 2, long ago at many times and in various ways, God spoke to our ancestors by the prophets, but in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son so here we already have a hint of contrast think about what's going on with the Hebrews they're under persecution they're, they're tempted to go back to the old covenant they're tempted to, to, to let's forget Jesus let's get back to the way things used to be it was easier we're not persecuted that way so that's their temptation so the, the sermon the preacher of Hebrews has got a, he's got a mission he's doing he starts off with a verse verse and there's already some contrast between the old revelation of Moses and the new revelation of Jesus because Moses after all was the greatest of the prophets He's the pinnacle of the prophetic institution. And here we have, long ago, he's spoken these ways. He spoke by our ancestors, by our prophets, but now he's spoken to us by his son. Moses was the greatest of the prophets, but he's inferior to the son. Now God has spoken with finality. And then he goes to chapter 2, and he speaks of Jesus' superiority to angels. And I've always scratched my head at that. I wonder, what's he doing there? But it's important to know that in Jewish tradition, even the Scripture, um, Deuteronomy thirty three two, Galatians 3.19, Acts 7.38, Acts 7.53, and Hebrews 2.2, 2, the giving of the law at Sinai, there was associated with angels in the giving of the law. In Jewish tradition and the Scripture, that there were angels involved with the giving of the law, that's why he's saying Jesus is also superior to angels. The new revelation is superior to the old. We could go on with Hebrews, but but won't just just a couple key verses on discontinuity. Hebrews 7, 11 and 12 if you want to flip there. Again, right now we're talking about discontinuity between the law of Christ and the law of Moses. Hebrews 7 11 and 12. Now if perfection was through the Levitical priesthood parentheses for on the basis of it the people received the law closed parentheses what further need was there for another priest to arise according to the order of Melchizedek and not be ne- designated according to the order of Aaron for when the priesthood is changed of necessity there takes Place a change of law also. I use the New American Standard here for some strange reason. The ESV is translated with dative, so you'll see it when there's a change in the law or a change in the priesthood, but they're both genitives. So you can, the, the King James, the New English Translation, the NLT, NIV, TNIV, they're all better here. Beware word-for-word marketing. Uh, NASB has it right. When there's a change Of priesthood, there's of necessity a change of law as well. Not changing the law, not changing the priesthood. So the change in redemptive history brings a change in the locus of authority. The duration of the law is bound up with the duration of the covenant. It's a package deal. Note that the text, when the, the text says, when the priesthood is changed which there clearly is, right? We can unpack Hebrews 7. There's clearly a change of priesthood. There is, necessity, there is necessarily a change of law as well. Listen, the Spirit-inspired Word says there's a change of law. New Covenant theology is not making this stuff up. We're just, we're just trying to do justice to the inscripturated text. More could be said about that, but just to skip down to verse 18. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. Former commandment is set aside. Okay, continuing with this continuity, uh, the Sabbath. Isn't this the issue? I- I'm taking ethics this semester, and we had a short section, too short on biblical theology and ethics and and talking about continuity and discontinuity. And this professor, um, he's not a covenant theologian, but he has a high view of the Ten Commandments. And he had a little section on how we ought to value the Ten Commandments and how they're still applicable to us. And one of the students, I was thinking, and I didn't say anything, one of the students said, hey, hold on, how does, because he was giving examples, you know, how the second, third, fourth, fifth commandments apply, fairly easy and obvious. And this student said, hey, what about the Sabbath? And my ethics professor said, well, let's just bracket the Sabbath out for now and just kept going. I said, man, how convenient. And that's the issue. Uh, just three passages on, uh, on the Sabbath. Colossians 2, 16 and 17. I'll just read these. You don't have to flip there. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon, or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the reality belongs to Christ. I mean, this is crystal clear, isn't it? Just let Paul say what he says. He relegates the Sabbath to a shadow. Skia, same thing Hebrews does in 10.1. It's very unlikely that he viewed the Sabbath as being fulfilled in the Lord's Day. There's just simply no biblical, no early historical evidence for viewing the Lord's Day as a fulfillment of the Sabbath. Romans 14 5 and 6 says, One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The days in mind here, they would certainly include the Sabbath. I mean, a Jewish person would inevitably think of the Sabbath since this was the day that most distinguished Jews from Gentiles. This is a far cry from remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Paul says, be convinced in your own mind. The Sabbath has reached its fulfillment in Jesus Christ. Finally, in Galatians 4, 8 to 11, is really fascinating. If you want to flip there, you can. Galatians 4, 8 to 11. Remember the context of what's going on in Galatia. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. But now that you've come to know God, or rather be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elemental spirits of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? This word is is controversial. I think it's really clear with this and Colossians that elemental spirit, stoicheia, has demonic reference. Some say, well, it's only the building blocks of the world. Well, if you have a biblical worldview and not a Western Enlightenment worldview, the, the world itself is ruled by the God of this age. So you can't avoid it. Verse 10, you observe days and months and seasons and years. You're turning back to paganism. How are you doing it? Observing the Sabbath. Are you kidding me? Paul had a backbone, didn't he? now let me let me clarify though this is after christ has come that's really important the sacrificial system is no longer effective so to return to it is a return to nothing it's to return to your damnation it's really clear in galatians so redemptive history is really important here but the point here is they're observing jewish days the sabbath is included here to return to the sabbath is to return to the stoicheia the elementary spirits All right, more could be said about the Sabbath, a whole lot more, but I'm I'm going to assume assume you understand that the Sabbath is a clear element of discontinuity between the law of Christ and the law of Moses. Now let's look a little bit of continuity. Seeing there's a heavy dose of discontinuity, so let's look a little bit of, of how they relate. Again, so although New Covenant believers are not under the Mosaic law, with Jesus in the New Covenant Scriptures as our hermeneutical filter Every command in Scripture remains applicable. In this sense, we can derive principles from the Old Covenant law. Common example that's thrown out is bestiality. You know, you New Covenant people, you can't deal with bestiality. Well, I think there's three three, three responses to that. One, pornea probably is broad enough to cover that, the word sexual immorality. Two, uh, look at the creation order it's man and, I mean, Adam and Eve, not Adam and Eve and Spot. Three three I have no problem I have no problem appealing to exodus twenty-two, nineteen, 22 nineteen leviticus 16. no problem appealing to those. I interpret these passages just like every other Old Testament passage in light of Jesus Christ. Uh, just a few examples I think a legitimate application of deuteronomy twenty two eight another common example where the commandments to, to build a parapet for your roof that that you may not bring the guilt of blood upon your house if anyone should fall from it. I mean, a really easy, I think, application for us is often, often appealed to is build, build a fence around your pool. What's the principle here? What's the principle behind this that we can bring over? Put up a beware of dog sign if Spot happens to be a Rottweiler. The principle is that your property not be a danger to your neighbors. Exodus twenty two twenty five cause Israel not to charge interest when lending money to fellow Israelites for us we can apply this by being generous being open-handed with fellow believers and obviously not charging them interest most of us don't have a field so we can't leave the fallen grapes for the poor and for the sojourner as Leviticus 19 says but we can obey the principle behind this command care for the poor be hospitable to strangers which is a way, another way of saying, love your neighbor. And of course, Jesus is really clear on all that. So these type of examples could go on and on. Paul seems to be principalizing the law in 1 Corinthians 9. Where he says, it's written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is it oxen that God is concerned? Does he not speak entirely for our sake? End quote. Here he, he, he clearly draws out a principle, doesn't he? From Deuteronomy 24. He's not imposing the law on New Covenant Christians. In fact, he's being remarkably free with this passage, and he's using it to summarize a principle the worker should reap material benefit from his work. Pay your workers, especially pastors. We find nine of the ten commandments reiterated in the New Testament. The Sabbath command, again, is the issue that divides theological systems. But the Ten Commandments cannot be extrapolated from the rest of the Old Covenant. Think about, again, last year we talked about the, the, the form of it in Exodus. Exodus 19 is the intro. Exodus 24 is the ceremony. Exodus 20 to 23 is the, you have the, the words of the covenant, then the principles, the commands, the ordinances of the covenant in 21 to 23. It's all a package. You can't separate it. It's the book of the covenant. So the Ten Commandments can't be taken from that. But think about um, Ephesians 6.2 quotation of the fifth commandment it demonstrates that while there's significant discontinuity there's also continuity in this same letter earlier at 215 Paul had already said that Christ had abolished the law with its commands and regulations yet he can go on to quote this very law and I think only new covenant theology can do justice to the way Paul handles the law the command to honor one's parents is both part of the law of Moses and part of the law of Christ but it should be noted though that the fifth commandment doesn't come over completely unchanged. Peter O'Brien in his commentary says, Significantly, when Paul reapplies the commandment to his Christian readers, he omits any reference to the land of Israel and universalizes the promise that it may go well with you and that you may enjoy long life on the earth. Gase, earth. So if we've seen, even though no, we're no longer bound to the Mosaic Law, the whole canon, the Decalogue included, is relevant for New Covenant believers. You better obey the Sabbath. Believe the gospel. It witnesses to Christ. Shows us our sin. But it reveals the character of our great God and King. Ask, why did he have this? Search, meditate, think. Think hard. This is hard work here. David Dorsey has a really good essay called The Law of Moses and the Christian. Really helpful essay. And here's here's what he says. It's kind of a long quote. Legally, none of the 613 stipulations of the Sinaitic Covenant are binding upon New Testament Christians, including the so-called moral laws. While in a revelatory and a pedagogical sense, all 613 are binding upon us, including all the ceremonial and civic laws, the Mosaic laws. Though, they, though not legally binding, comprise a treasure of insights that's how we ought to talk about the law comprises a treasure of insights and information regarding the very mind and ways of god it was tailor-made by the one we seek to know and serve it's here that the point of profound applicability for the christian is found a law reflects the mind the personality the priorities, the values, the likes and dislikes of the lawgiver. Each law issued by God to ancient Israel, like each declaration by God through the prophets, reflects God's minds and ways and is therefore a theological treasure. So the law and the prophets, they're They're applicable the New Covenant believers interpreted in light of Christ Jason Meyer puts it well the coming of Christ has caused a paradigm shift that calls for recalibrating all former commands in light of his centrality this approach recognizes that the law of Moses in its entirety has come to an end in the sense that the believer does not start by asking what did the law teach the believer begins at the point where his Christian life began Christ. The believer found new life in Christ and so now comes to Christ to find out how to live out his new life. So, the law of Christ is the law of love. The law of Christ is the example of Christ. The law of Christ is the teaching of Christ. The law of Christ is the teaching of Christ's apostles. And the law of Christ is the whole Bible, interpreted in light of Christ. Let's pray. Mm -hmm. Father, how kind of you to reveal yourself to us. Lord, you could have left us in the dark but instead you've you've given us a rich treasure of revelation Father starting with Moses culminating in Christ Father we are so thankful Oh, we're so thankful to live this side of the resurrection we have so much beauty to behold and with that brings responsibility Lord I pray that we would be those who give our whole selves to obeying the law of Christ Lord I pray that you would use this session and the conference Lord not, not to To foster pride because we hold a certain position that happens to be biblical, Lord, but let us be true Calvinists. Father, let us be those who realize that even theological discernment is a gift from you. Lord, foster humility in our hearts. Give us a passion for Christ, Father. Help us. We fall so short, it's so hard to love, Lord. Help us to love one another, even those that are unlike us with personalities, unlike us doctrinally, Lord. Our, honor is to, our goal is to honor you, Lord. I pray that you do that. Uh, you would help us to do that, Father. We pray these things through Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit. Ever one God. Amen. I want to clarify something real quick before we get started. Rod said questions and encouragements. <laughs> so
1: so uh, my name is Berkeley Greider from South Carolina with the New Covenant Christian Fellowship of Greenville. And I would just... The Lord filled my soul with uh, what you presented this morning, so I thank you very much for that. And we all held the same sentiments. So, my pleasure. Um, now, I, I'm going to have to be a little disobedient because he said simple question, and I'm not so sure it's simple because it's multifaceted. But it's it's basic enough. Um, I'll just start by reading Romans uh, chapter eight, starting in verse two. Uh, for the law of the spirit of life. In Christ Jesus, has set you free from the law of sin and death. For for what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending His own Son, um, in the likeness of sinful flesh, etc., etc. Um, but so the question is sort of a: What is the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus? Is that the same as the law of Christ? Which um, you can r- run with that. And then the law of sin and death is that the same as the law of Moses? Or is it separate? And then to tie it all together, how if the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus is the same as the law of Christ, or those are interchangeable terms if they are, how can you, I guess, take that language of the Holy Spirit and infuse it into your five points that you gave earlier? Okay. Is that too complicated?
0: No, let's here in case I missed it. I missed a part of it. Uh, yeah, I didn't mention Romans 8 too because I don't think... Uh, This is one of the few instances, I think, where Paul uses the word law and doesn't refer to the Mosaic law. There's very few places that went I mean, I'm sorry. uh, That's the second second question. Uh, This is, though, I think that one of the few places where uh, Paul uses it is like a principle. I think he does the same thing in Romans 3.27 where he says, what kind of law, law of faith. I think he's just using a word play on law. So I think the law of the spirit of life, he's just using a word play to mean the Holy Spirit. So that's how I take law of the spirit I think he's just saying the Holy Spirit and, and based on the, the context of Romans 7 we've heard nothing about the spirit the law doesn't transform 8 all about the spirit so I think he's introducing it there um, law of sin and death I do think is the mosaic law but I want to say that it's the laws resulting in sin and death so it's a genitive there They're genitives, and then one interpret those a certain way the law resulting in sin and death and the reason why it results in sin and death chapter 7 there's no spirit I mean, John Reisinger has talked about the law lacking uh, batteries. The Old Covenant lacked batteries. Well, what are the batteries? What are the empowering presence of the Holy Spirit? So why did the law not work? The Spirit was missing. So the Spirit is the unique ingredient in the New Covenant that transforms mm-hmm. believers. Uh, 2 Corinthians 3, I think, is all about that very question. Third, the third question, so I, I would fit this into the, the part of the book or part of the talk about the empowering presence of the Spirit and its importance not in the actual definition of the law of Christ. Is that clear?
2: Um, yeah, I mean, yeah. Uh, I pose one question to, I have two things in mind here. I pose one question to J.C.C. Meyer through his blog. Where do you go next with this? And I mentioned about how the exposure to myself with Tom Dedham and his new, cur- new Covenant morality of Paul and another guy named Lupser, Lupser out of uh, South Africa with pretending to, pertaining to the ethic Derive from the spirit, and I think Lutzer brings out a very interesting point. He says, if we don't go to Galatians, okay, excuse me, the law for sanctification or justification, and uh, and he says then then you must derive your ethic from the spirit. And, and what does that mean to some people? And what would it mean to you? That's question number one. That's I the right. Ref- reframe it in the yeah. Okay, if he says uh, Lutzer says his point is that we 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 would not go to the law uh, for for uh, uh, you know for justification, obviously and uh, he speaks in terms of sanctification. Do we go there for our ethic?
0: To uh, the Mosaic Law. Yeah,
2: to the Mosaic okay. Law, to the ethic. And uh, especially when he's contrasting what the work of the Spirit is in comparison to what the law could not do. In other words, where do we d- derive our ethic? So it's a, it's a question that I pose to Jason C. Meyer pretty much as well. And this, I believe, is an area that we have to do a lot of work in. And hopefully you scholars in it. But where would you take that? if you? Don't mind yeah,
0: you're not going to like this. Yeah, go ahead. We derive it from the five points of the law of Christ, so okay. it's a, the five-tiered level.
2: Oh, like, I like that. I like that. Okay. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Well, yeah, that would be my answer. Just yeah. the way the way I formulate, I think, is the best way to find what is our ethic. Yeah. And I think um, this that you have to have all five points to, to do justice to all the all the. Yeah, because I, I
2: think that includes that, and I think it also head puts a hedge there against the uh, the unwarranted accusation by some when a hear us speak of the uh, important role of the ministry of the Holy Spirit, whether we go to 2 Corinthians 3 or whatever, Romans chapter 8, uh, and that, that those who are very law-oriented and not spirit-oriented really become, sh- you know, they get all shook up, and what are you talking about? And, and I th- I've also emphasized, even on our New York think tank, that we must give a strong emphasis upon the importance of the book of God, the word of God, from Genesis to the Revelation. So what you handled, I thought was very well. The other question Thanks. which I gave you a hint about earlier was 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 4 and 5, uh, is to where did Paul derive his ethic or his guidance here for giving direction to the church and the handling of the man who was taking up, taken up in sin with his stepmother, if you want to put it that way. Uh, and he says in verse 5, he says, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that a spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. And that's interesting that we know he didn't get that from the Old Testament scriptures, because the Old Testament scriptures, that man would be a dead dog mm-hmm. who would no longer be barking, okay? So, where did Paul go? Where, where, where did Paul go for insight or guidance uh, to give the church this uh, uh, direction for behavior? And would this be helpful to us in any sense? Uh, the subject of uh, uh, bestiality. And people say, where do you go? I think Paul has something here for us in this direction, but uh, I think this is a question that, you know, it's helpful to at least pose this question and say, okay, where did he derive uh, the guidance he gave the church to deal with this man uh, and to the point of, hopefully, to see the man reconciled to Christ? And that's a hint, of course.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I think I think maybe two answers. One, I think I mentioned in in about Galatians 6, I think a lot of of Jesus teaching. Let me just read Matthew 18:15 and, and following. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have a, you've gained your brother. If he doesn't listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. If you're refusing to listen to even the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. So and there's probably a lot more that Jesus said. And so I think this Jesus tradition, if you want to use that language, that might be unhelpful, but ultimately from Christ, I think he got it. Secondly, though, I think you, you got to do justice to the uniqueness of the apostolic office that, that Paul, I mean, think about just the nature of our Bible. You have the Holy Spirit moving the writers to write what they wrote so that the end product is a, is a God-breathed text. Um, so for us, I don't think we have the freedom Paul had because we're not apostles that make sense?
2: No, I definitely do. I, I, I think that they're speaking for Christ, and I think one of the great dangers uh, we encounter, I think, as we do theology is to separate the apostles, the apostolic writers, from Christ. Right. And I think there's also an importance we have to lay upon how they derive much of their theology from the Gospels. Right. And I think uh, uh, what you mentioned earlier with respect to... Uh, where we go, where do we go for instruction for, for living godly lives is, is best exemplified by the law of Jesus Christ because he did works of mercy and he not only did what the law demanded he, he, he not only said what the law said but he also fulfilled it in his actions and you see that on the pages the historical account of Jesus as well uh, so we see really truly the highest as John would say and I'll forget how impacted I was the first time I heard say that Jesus Christ is the highest righteous standard of God. And to deny that to me is 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 unbelievable, but some do or come close to that. I appreciate what you said.
0: Thanks, Mom. Uh, how are you? Good, how are you doing?
2: Um
3: my name is Patrick Slego, I'm with Covenant Baptist and uh Thanks. but I had uh three questions. Two of them have to do with uh The relationship between what you had to say and evangelism and the last one has to do with Romans 2. The first one you said in your first um, session that you made it a point to say that the New Testament commands um, are part of the law of Christ. I know that you don't completely agree with some New Covenant theologians who say that the New Testament commands are what the law of Christ is but you added in that the New Testament commands are part of it Right. you also said that 1 Corinthians 9 is uh, is missional and I, I just had heard you say earlier in the beginning of your session that uh, you feel that open air and open air preaching or evangelism is uh, a uh, not the best method i think is what you said
0: oh yeah well let me clarify okay. what i what i meant was this particular kind of brother oh uh, okay no, that's, yeah, I, I wanted
3: to i was going to say that, that i wanted to give you the benefit of the doubt on yeah that. yeah yeah this kind um, of
0: condemning homosexuality with a microphone yeah because
3: you know. because that's uh i had seen that in the new testament it seems that open air is the primary method. yeah no
0: it wasn't a knock on open air at all yeah. just this kind of brother
3: well thank you for that clarification Um, also in regards to evangelism um, in light of you saying that uh, the Mosaic law is completely abrogated and I think you may have answered this in your second lecture is uh, what is the relationship of the law to evangelism and should we use the law in evangelism in light of Paul using the law in Romans 1 to 3 as far as showing the people their wickedness and um, condemnation before God
0: uh, I mean, I think it's fine. I think the gospel is good news, and to proclaim Jesus as Lord, forgiveness of sins, doesn't require the law to be preached. You know, you can preach the gospel without the law. But On the other hand, you know, the good news is not understood without the bad news, is it?
3: Mm-hmm. That's, so, I actually just preached Sunday on the gospel, and uh, that's what I said, is you, when you understand the bad news, you see the surpassing greatness of the good news.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, So, yeah, but I don't think it's required. I mean, there's some circles that say, oh, you're not doing evangelism. You're not gospel preaching if you don't go from the law. I don't think we need to do that, but I think it is helpful. I think evangelism is also very person-specific. I mean, you have some, you know, there's a broad range of people, and some are going to have different questions, different agendas, different backgrounds.
3: Now, instead of the law, would you say that it is important that you convince somebody of their condemnation, whether you use the law or not? I know this is kind of going against what you had to say in the lectures but just as a side
0: uh well i mean to put it this way if a person doesn't understand their need for forgiveness they're not going to seek it yeah
3: so yeah well thank you on that and uh last one just real quick i don't want to take up everybody's time but uh in romans 2 uh you mentioned this in passing and i read this in your book uh How would you define natural law according to Romans 2? And do you think that it is significant that the Ten Commandments are referenced even in passing and later on in chapter 2? Where it says, I have it here. uh, While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You say that one must not commit adultery. Do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temple? You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. Um, it seems to me there that he's referencing the Ten Commandments in some way. Would you say that that is uh, significant when he talks about natural law in earlier in Romans 2? Uh,
0: probably not. Um, I mean, if you think about the argument of Romans as a whole, you know, he's going after uh, Gentiles, particularly in chapter 1. And so, you know, a Jew could be saying, "Amen, that's right." You know, condemn them to hell. Chapter two, Paul turns the guns on the Jews and says, "Hold on a minute, you're not you're not much better." Yeah. So I think you know, I think that's what he's doing. He's showing the Jews that you know you are the chosen people of God, and you still need Jesus Christ. Yeah. So um, I'm not sure what you mean. Can you say the question again about natural law. Um, what?
3: natural law, the law. na you you had, um, I think, kind of not interpreted the same way as another speaker but you had said that the natural law in Romans 2 at least in the book I think this is the way I understood it that it's the law written on the heart of every person in the conscience that's kind of the way I understood you to say it in the book Um, and I was just wondering if the fact that he had referenced specific aspects of the Ten Commandments later on in chapter 2 whether that had significance to whether natural law as A covenant theologian would say that the natural law written on the heart is the Ten Commandments.
0: Okay. Uh, For the sake of time, we can talk later. For the sake of time, I'm going to say no. I definitely don't think the natural law, God's moral law, whatever language you want to use, absolute law, Gary Long uses. I don't think it is the Ten Commandments in summary form. Okay. So, and we can talk more. I know it probably didn't
4: satisfy you, but
0: definitely. Well,
3: I'm very happy and thank you for what you did. It was very. Edifying and uh, really enjoy what you had to say. Oh, thanks. Thank you. My name
4: is Joseph Krieger. Um, Question, and then there will be a little second part to this. Um, See if you might agree. We cannot separate Christ from what he does and from what he says because both are a full expression of who he is. He does what he does says what he says because of who he is. Sure. Okay. Can we take your five points, and not to make it reductionism, but as a heading, and then to look at those five points as the composite of who he is, the law of love, and his fullest expression is Jesus Christ. His example, that's his living out who he is, is Jesus Christ. His teaching is is the expressing of who he is, Jesus Christ. teaching of the apostles is the same. It's the expression of Christ himself through those who are his New Testament prophets. And all of Scripture seen properly in light of Christ is seeing nothing but Christ, and in the end, he is the incarnate word. As we read that word, and when we then view Christ, he's the incarnation of all the word of God as he fulfills it all, and is coming and is continuing to through the whole idea of eschaton. So, therefore, the law of Christ is Christ Himself, and Christ Himself is expressed as the law in these five ways. The bad guy comes to the cowboy town and says, Who's the law around here? Well, it's Marshall Dillon. He who is the law is the law. Whatever the law says, written or unwritten, you go to Marshall Dillon. He's the law. We go to Christ. He is the law. Is that acceptable in your frame of thinking in the context of, of your book, even though you haven't put it quite that way? That is a conclusion I could draw from looking at your five points, thinking that through a little
0: more. Yeah, sure, you could say that, but I think if without this conversation, I'm talking in other quarters who didn't hear the talk, and you say Jesus Christ is the law. That's, no, no,
4: and that's what I'm saying, you couldn't reduce it down to that for the sake yeah. of just saying that. Then you've got to qualify that. But as a way of giving that the titular head and under it and this is why you could say that in that sense not reducing it down to reductionism that this is it and you just let that fly but in that context isn't that what all these five things is essentially saying essentially he himself is the law in that way
0: yeah I think so but I would end up saying the five points again so mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I'm not sure what we gain by it mm-hmm. except for a nice summary
5: okay
4: So, thank you
5: my name's Jim Pritt, and I'm with the Covenant Baptist in Uniontown. Um, I appreciated your messages a lot, and uh, I've come to the same conclusions over the years. Uh, I just have one question, no parts. Uh, the, the defining passages to me in this area that I read was Galatians 3 and Hebrews 4. You did read something out of Hebrews 4, but I wondered if you could maybe give a little more about what you think in that area because Hebrews 4 gives us the true rest of the believer and uh, you know the, the Sabbath the day of the week is not that and that's what convinced me of the position of the law in Christ and uh, you, I, I don't think in your messages unless I missed it I don't think you expounded on that particular thing Okay,
0: so just Hebrews 4, that's all you want me to talk about, not the, not the uh, Galatians 3? Uh,
5: yeah, Hebrews 4, really.
0: Okay, sure, yeah. Uh, I can't remember if this, in, in this book, if I flesh it out more, I, I do definitely in the first book a little more on just the argument of Hebrews, which is really fascinating. I mean, the preacher of Hebrews knew his Old Testament so well, and his message is, listen, you don't need anything in the New Testament to realize that the Old Testament itself is insufficient, because he's saying, he go, he starts out with, Hebrews 2, and he's quoting Psalm 8, and he's pointing beyond it. Then he goes on, Hebrews 3 and 4, he's going to Joshua, and then he's quoting Psalm 95, saying, listen, you should have known, there's a rest till to come. Then he continues on with Hebrews 7, and he's saying, look, didn't you read Genesis 14? Who's this Melchizedek guy? Weren't you paying attention? Then you look at Psalm 110. This is David's new, you know, David's going to be in the order of Melchizedek. Aren't you paying attention here? The Levitical priesthood's coming to an end. Melchizedek's who you looking for. Jeremiah uh, 31 and Hebrews 8. Listen, the new covenant is prophesied in Jeremiah itself. Why did he have to prophesy? Why did he have to promise if the old covenant was sufficient? So Hebrews over and over is saying, listen, the old covenant itself confessed its own inadequacy. So uh, with four, it's the same thing. I mean, if you look at the argument, just really carefully read what he's doing there. And he's just reading his Old Testament really well, saying the Sabbath pointed beyond itself. Our true eschatological rest comes in Jesus Christ. It's a, I mean, it's an awesome book. As John makes his way, let me point out that John has meditated on scripture maybe 60 years longer than I have, so why don't you ask your question and then go ahead and answer it for us.
6: (laughs) I think that we try to do something with the scriptures that the scriptures never intended us to do. And I love systematic theology, but it really has a danger if we're not careful. Martin Lloyd-Jones preached 13 years on the book of Romans. When that letter was written, it was a letter that was supposed to be read in the morning church service and apparently understood. That amazes me. Secondly, no New Testament writer of Scripture ever wrote a commentary on any of the books of the Old Testament. And I think we try to do with the Scripture something that's just not there, and we are theologizing rather than exegeting Scripture sometimes if we're not careful. So we ought to go as far as scripture goes, and then have the humility to stop. And I think that's one of our biggest problems in Reformed circles. As Calvin says, we have kind of a learned ignorance, and we ought to recognize that, and and put some self-breaks on ourselves, and I think it would also give us a little more tolerance if somebody doesn't do the other thing, because there's so many things intertwined with each other. Did I answer my question?
0: I think so.
7: John Jeffrey from Wayside Gospel Chapel in Greentown, Pennsylvania. Uh, I want everyone to understand something here. Uh, when John asked me for what I wanted to speak on, I had no idea Blake was speaking or what he was speaking on, and I had my—I I, without hesitation—I gave him my titles and my text. And then I found out Blake was speaking on the law of Christ, and I went, "Uh oh!" And then I heard about his book, and I went online and got the table of contents and saw the chapter titles, and I went, "Uh oh!" And then I got the book real fast from Jacob, and I looked, and I go, yep. So I I got a hold of Blake, and I said, just hope you know this this was not intentional unless, and he's perfectly capable of it, <laughs> that sly John Bunyan sitting back there did it. <laughs> you know he slipped a ring around us one year, and he did it intentionally with... Uh, David Morris on Romans 7. <laughs> so just so everyone understands, and I, he has not had the opportunity to hear me, and so I am not going to put him on the spot. I'm just, I, I'm just curious about one thing. You might be able to help me out. Uh, you referred to Thielman, and uh, the phrase was traditional moral teaching, and you connected that to your understanding of the law of Christ. Uh, You also mentioned Thielman's circles, his denominational connection. What I'm wondering, it's just a curiosity, a suspicion, if you will, have you picked up anything in the context, in his intent, in his usage, that this is like a code word for him where someone else might say eternal moral law
0: yeah, no, not at all. Thielman is really helpful, and he's so helpful because he's so inconsistent, at least with his denomination. Uh He's really, really careful with the text. And uh, I found out he was a PCA guy af- after I'd read him some, and I don't know how he squares his exegesis with the, uh, with the Westminster Confession. I don't know how it works out. You know, maybe he's not a—I mean, I don't know how that works, but he is a PCA minister, ordained PCA minister. He's a professor at Beeson. And he's got a, got a lot of work on the law. And I find him, him and D- Douglas Moo, by far, the most helpful guys I've read. He's got one called The Law in the New Testament. And in there, he doesn't use the language of traditional moral teaching very often at all. He uses the language of law of Christ. And he's explicitly clear the Old Covenant has ceased in its entirety. And so he's putting things together just like I am, and, and many of you are. Um, the, the article that I quoted, I don't know the date. I ought to look at the date. It may have been earlier in his... Uh, you know, in his career, and maybe he's switched from using traditional moral teaching to just saying the law of Christ. Uh, that'd be something to look into. But he's got Paul in the law, and then he's got a New Testament theology that's great. And I know I don't think he means eternal moral law, in spite of uh, his confessional background. So praise God for covenant theologians who take the text seriously. Question
7: here: uh, Titus two fourteen, where Paul writes, "Who gave himself for us to redeem us from?" All lawlessness, and the question is, is what law were they not keeping? What were they short of there? And to purify for himself a people for his possession who are zealous for good works, would you equate that with lawfulness? And would you equate that then as well with the law of Christ in that second half of that phrase there?
0: Yeah, I think lawlessness, I think it just means disobedience in general. Um, I'm not sure. I might be reading too much into the text to try to define exactly what he means there. But we could look at all his other letters, and he has his different vice lists of sins. So I think that's just, I mean, if you look at verse 11, training is to renounce all ungodliness, worldly passions, to live self-control. So it's broad categories. Uh, and so and the good works, I don't know if I'd want to call it lawfulness, since he doesn't. But even then, right they're right there in that context. Uh, for self-controlled, upright, godly lives in the present age, so for good works, I would want to define it within you know within Paul first and then the New Testament, the whole Bible. so at the end of the day, yeah, I think I could say he's talking about these big big principles, law of Christ, but that's so I've defined it so broadly uh, on purpose. I think we have to to do justice to to everything. so I think that's it.
2: Uh, Steve Cowden, um, yesterday a question was asked, <clears throat> what would be the content? written on the heart in 2nd Corinthians chapter 3 uh, what would you say that was
0: you're talking about 3-3 and show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us written not with ink but with the spirit of the living God not on tablets of stone but on tablets of human hearts yeah I think there's a big not not entirely but a big internal external contrast in uh, in 2nd Corinthians 3 which is part of it It doesn't tell the whole story and uh, so we serve God in a new way, and I've, I've already unpacked all that. So I think at the end of the day, to do justice to everything, I think you have to say the law of Christ. And when, and when I say that, I mean the big five points. I mean, what else? What Do you have any suggestions on what you're thinking? I mean, you can't, what are you going to say? It's not the Mosaic Law. And then, then you're left, well, what is it? Is it Jesus' teaching? Well, yes, but. Is it the apostles? Yes, but. You know what I mean? So at the end of the day, I think all these new covenant passages new heart law in the heart yeah it's the law of christ but the way i've defined it i think as broadly as i have does justice to all the relevant data that we have and that's the challenge isn't it i mean this is what john said systematic theology is great we all do it we all need it Uh, but exegesis has to undergird it all and that's messy work messy hard work we got to do justice to all of the scripture if our systems don't do justice to every passage we need to go back to the drawing board And so to put it together that way, I think we have to think in those broadest terms. Thank you.